0: This is an extraordinarily fluid moment in a period that will likely define the next century.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Lucy Caldwell, in for Ron Steslow. And this is the Weekly Roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of this week— and how they're shaping our political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the Roundup is Senior Advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute and co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. The one and only Mike Madrid. Mike, it's good to see you.
0: Lucy, it's great to be on board with you driving the car. I'm looking forward to this episode.
1: (laughs) Well, I hope we won't crash it, but I know there's no one I'd rather crash the car with than you, Mike.
0: (laughs) Thanks. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and making her politicology debut, Rena Shaw. Rena is a former senior aide on the Hill to two Republican members of the House, and she's a commentator and geopolitical risk advisor, and also a great friend. Rena, I'm so glad to welcome you to your first politicology roundup. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Lucy. So fun to be here. Up first this week, we'll discuss the horrific terrorist attacks Hamas has carried out in Israel over the last week, the massacres and atrocities, and the reactions at home. Then we're going to discuss the campaigns for the next Speaker of the House, facing an international crisis without a speaker, and what happens when performative politics that have come to dominate Washington meet the real world. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll look at Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s announcement that he'll run for president as an independent and how that's elicited worried reactions from the Trump team. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of today's show notes. And before we get started, I want to say that we're going to focus today on the domestic reaction to the attack on Israel, but Ron has been working on bringing more conversations to the podcast that will address many of the dimensions of this horrific crisis Ron spoke with Hagar Shamali earlier this week about the terrorist attacks, the intelligence failures, and the reports that Iran helped organize and greenlight the attack. That episode is out on your feeds now and should be right next to this one. Over the weekend, the terrorist organization Hamas launched an unprecedented assault on Israel. It was the largest breach of Israel's defenses since Arab armies waged war in 1973. The attack was planned over the course of 2 years. During that time, Hamas worked to deceive Israel and convince Israeli intelligence that it was not seeking a fight. Then, on Saturday morning, Hamas launched a barrage of 3,000 rockets from Gaza while terrorists flew hang gliders over the border. Those fighters paved the way for more terrorists to cross the border, and once they were inside Israel, Hamas overran two dozen towns and communities on a deadly killing spree. We're still learning more and more about the atrocities Hamas has committed. We know that Hamas has killed more than 1,000 people, including women and children. We know Hamas has abducted an estimated 150 more people. More than 100 people were massacred at a music festival that was about three miles from the Gaza border. An unknown number of people were abducted from the event. More than 100 people, including children, were killed at a kibbutz early Saturday morning. On Tuesday, just four days after the attack, the Israeli military was able to secure a village just across some fields from the Gaza border. There were dozens of corpses in the street. They estimated that there could be hundreds of Israelis who were killed. Israeli broadcaster I-24 News reported that soldiers believe 40 children were killed in the massacre. Some were burned and some were beheaded. Mike and Rena, this has been a really shocking week. It started this weekend. It seems like the pace of... The horror has not changed. Can you talk about how you felt watching these stories come out of Israel over the last week? Mike, maybe you can kick us off.
0: There were a lot of similarities. Um, And look, I think a lot of us are still processing. I know that I'm still processing. And again, as news comes out and and as we watch the world kind of um, contract and expand with just the raw emotion, and trying to comprehend some of the uh, inhumanity what what we've been witness to. Um, th- there's a lot of correlations for me to that to that nine eleven, that that shock, that awe, that surprise, and the attempt to comprehend the size and scope of not only what happened at a human level, but what happens to the world now because things things have forever changed. this is this is much bigger than the Yom Kippur War. This is much bigger. Um, than anything, really, uh, in many ways, uh, Israel and the Jewish people have faced in, in in you know nearly a century, and and I think that for me, trying to just kind of um, you know, people know I'm very active and and uh, on, on social media, I, I, I have I have commented on this, um, but but I, I've I have found that I've been strikingly focused kind of consciously on other issues, because the more that I follow this story, the more I find myself uh, feeling more despondent than, than I normally am about the news of the day. And I just am, am um, just keenly aware that there was a before time and an after time. And these, these moments occur throughout our lives as we kind of journey on this path. And this is one of those moments. Israel's forever changed. The modern uh, conception of israel the 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 the, the domestic certainly the domestic political opinion of of the palestinian and israeli uh, relationship is is truly forever changed and um i think we're also stealing ourselves for what we're going to see in the next week to 10 days um as as israel um and, and and as we position in in the mediterranean to to Commence a a very significant response to to what will probably be the complete destruction and eradication of Hamas.
1: Rena, how are you? How are you thinking about this? How how are you? Do you see it as a before and after the way Mike does? What's been running through your head in the last few days?
2: For me, as a mother, I think it's just been so jarring to know of the atrocities. Uh, It shook. It's for me. It's it shook me to the core because. When you talk about the innocents that are lost in in moments like this, um, it's it's just so much of a shock to the system uh, that you know you can't help but feel the empathy that's needed, and immediately the operative me is thinking, you know, we need calls for unity in response to terror. That's what you do in the aftermath of terror events like this, Hamas. Uh, as, as a very popular meme put out by the American Jewish, Jewish Coalition says, Hamas, these people are not militants, they're not martyrs, they're not resistance fighters, they are terrorists, the people that did what they did a few days ago. So this attack on Israel, um, no doubt American Jews are feeling the pain from it. I, as somebody who's not a member of the community, I I can feel that pain through my friends who are Jewish and feeling like how could this even happen? Uh, aren't we so far past a moment in which, um, you know, Israeli intelligence was not just vulnerable? My gosh, this exposed straight up massive gaps. Um, and and so then it begs the question: How do you move forward as the as citizens in the United States? Do we call on our government to do more, and what is that more? And so for me, um, you know, I've 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 had this. Talk with folks uh, around Washington for a long time. We you know, and there's a couple camps, right? Those who believe that moving towards a multipolar world is a bad thing, and those who think that it need not be that way. And and I'm one of those in in the latter camp. But when I look at the situation on its face, um, I see you know the reality, and it's that Netanyahu did not call Xi. Uh, Netanyahu called Biden. Right. And and we may be moving towards a multipolar world, but I don't think we're fully there yet. And the United States is still very much that beacon of light in the world that people feel will save them when horrific, atrocious things like this happen. Um, the United States steps in and stands for the very principles that we are founded on. And, and we have the backs of these people um, that are are going through great pain right now in, in Israel. Um what what I know is happening right now is that Jewish communities around the world um, are galvanized because of what these Hamas militants did. Now, does that change what the United States' response uh, has ever been? We have the back of Israel. We always have. That's just something coming up in, in the era that I've come in in politics. It's it's just part and parcel of being part of um of either party today, you've got to have Israel's back. But but let's go back to that that question of what is our role now. Relationships are so critical, and those relationships were not there during the Trump administration. People like uh, Fiona Hill, Alexander Vinman, you know, different people tried, uh, but the, certain relationships fell apart. And I think right now a great many Israelis are feeling very encouraged in fact that there are reports of that and firsthand accounts of how they are feeling very good about how President Biden spoke the other night in support of israel
1: yeah you're you're right about that i've seen I've seen posts from people who are leaders of of like right wing <laughs> publications like the Washington Examiner you know um, one of one of their folks has been posting about how he's totally satisfied <laughs> with how Biden is responding and that he thinks that this is a, a you know strong showing from Biden it's an interesting moment of of unification you you mentioned when you were speaking you you mentioned like clearly defining defining who Hamas is that Hamas is a terrorist group and that the members of Hamas are terrorists and and none of that is to say that Hamas are the same as the 2.2 million people in Gaza who are the Palestinians who live in a hundred and forty square mile landlocked region, half of whom are children. So but I, I think that you calling out who Hamas is 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 really important and gets to what I want to wanna ask you both about, which is that we have seen a really stark divide emerge on the left especially, around the reaction to the terrorist attacks by Hamas. And many of the elected officials and leaders in the Democratic Party have, as you say, voiced unequivocal support for Israel's right right to defend itself. But others have condemned the violence in a different way. They've urged both sides to agree on a ceasefire. They have not been so warm to the idea that Israel should do what it feels is needed at this time and then others still have almost ignored what has happened or or even justified What Hamas has done, and perhaps the most striking display of that was a rally that took took place in New York in Times Square um, that was organized by the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, The wire service Jewish News Syndicate reported that signs carried during the rally included language like "Smash the settler Zionist state," and "When people are occupied, resistance is justified." They also chanted things like, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which is a slogan that in turn calls for Israel's destruction. New York Governor Kathy Hochul called the rally abhorrent and morally repugnant. Uh, Democratic Representative Richie Torres wrote on X, that's what we call Twitter now, that the DSA in New York has revealed itself to be, quote, an anti-Semitic stain on the soul of America's largest city, so that's just what happened at that rally. But this has played out in a lot of different fora over the last few days, um, around posts uh, among uh, university groups, um, posts by local Black Lives Matter chapters. Um, you know, it has created it has created an environment where you have. Um, Fortune 500 CEOs trying to get the names of of students who are making pro Hamas statements to make sure that they're never hired. You have you know law firms rescinding offers. There's just there's a lot going on, and a lot of it is stemming from this reaction, these reactions to what has happened through rallies, through these letters, through these postings. So. I wonder, Mike, what your reaction to seeing that rally, seeing these episodes unfold, has been, and and what do you make of the response from Democratic elected leaders like Hochul and Torres, in contrast to to other Democrats? Is this is this a a hot moment, or does this reflect some kind of realignment? Does it reflect um, sort of a a blip where that that kind of uh, strongly pro Palestine wing of the democratic party is going to be um tamped down what, what are we what what is going to happen mike
0: it's <laughs> a great it's all those are all the right questions to be asking at this moment and i think it's also why in, in many ways you know trying to find some calm and and try to view this as clinically as possible at a moment where you know a, a, a war in the middle east um could have been Was sparked, and we'll see again how this turns out. Because I think a lot of this is going to be dependent on the Israeli response, which almost by definition has to be disproportionately overwhelming, and that that in and of itself creates a whole host of issues. But in in full disclosure, you know, I've done polling work for the American Jewish Committee, uh, not 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 too long ago, actually, just a few months ago, and it was designed to focus on uh, Latino leaderships throughout the country, leaders uh, in various capacities, academia. Business politics, uh, because we're trying to get a sense of what their what their sense of both Israel and anti semitism was. Obviously, separately, uh, the, the most stark stark finding was the lack of awareness of basically this historic conflict. And I'm, I'm listening intently to Rena because I think she's she's offering a lot of wisdom um, in kind of the the general you know, geopolitical landscape of what this time means and where we are heading. And I say that because we have to recognize that if you're under, you know, 50 years of age and don't really remember, you know, some of the intricacies of of the Cold War, the United States and the Cold War, the United States, with the exception, and it's a very significant exception of of 9-11, hasn't had foreign policy and these foreign policy issues as a main driver in our political system. Like the, the period between 1989 when the wall fell... And the incursion, really, I would say in 2014, but probably of, of, of the Russians into Crimea, this general state of, of US hegemony has created an American public that is really not as engaged in foreign affairs as we were back in the Cold War and as I think we are starting to re enter as citizens of the world. And this is going to dramatically reshape and redefine the way the American public, especially young people view the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and or relationship. And that is not something that has been at top of mind for most Americans in most of our living memory. Now, the challenge, I think, in this is going to be um, what the response looks like, right? Because there's all, both sides are going to have Incredible communications teams messaging into this very sophisticated, very well resourced operations to start driving message and imagery and video. We also know that um, X, by the way, or Twitter, whatever I like to still call it Twitter. Everyone knows what the <laughs> hell I'm talking about. I call it Twitter. You know, um, the European Union, you know, calls Musk onto the carpet and says, "Look, you you were you were pushing this stuff out essentially knowingly that this all this massive disinformation." about what was going on in Israel. You've got to be held to account for that. That's that's very significant, too, because it created this break for the first time I've seen, um, certainly in the Musk era, where journalists were consciously getting onto other platforms and saying, I've had it with Twitter. I've had it with X. And I've always posited that the only thing propping up Twitter as a political place to go is the journalists made their identities there, their followings are there, their clicks are there, so they can't leave. And Twitter will always be something as long as these journalists have these significant followings, because that's their trade. This changed that. People are constantly, are, 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 are leaving now, journalists are leaving with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers and starting basically anew, because they're realizing that their work is being um, considered no less, in fact, no better than than the disinformation that's been coming out. And so I'm looking at this, again, is from a communications standpoint and trying to assess, like, this is a new moment in the digital age. In the same way that the the, 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 the Donbass incursion was, the movement out of beyond Crimea and into the heartland of Ukraine forever changed the way the digital age was going to be working in this global conflict. This is the second stage of that. This is going to take this age-old, centuries-old, you know, conflict, and it's going to really redefine, I think, the way the American public sees it. The stakes are very, very high domestically. Uh, some fresh polling data just came out of, out of Israel that shows overwhelming, like 73% of Israelis believe that this was much bigger than the Yom Kippur War. 65% believe that it's um, an intelligence failure on part of their own government. So there's going to be a lot of domestic politics that are going to be held to account, which will have ramifications here in the United States. And it's going to be, I think it's an extraordinarily fluid situation. But what I do believe also is that the lines of, of who's on what side are, are, are going to become very, very clear. And this will probably be very polarizing, but it has an opportunity for Israel to really redefine its brand and its image in the minds of younger Americans.
1: Zooming out to that geopolitical implications that you're talking about, Mike, on Tuesday, President Biden spoke from the state dining room where he did condemn Hamas. He said the brutality of Hamas has brought to mind the worst rampages of ISIS. And he offered the United States unequivocal support to Israel. He underlined Israel's right to self-defense. He gave an unqualified condemnation of terror. He also noted that in his conversation with Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, they discussed how democracies like Israel and the United States are stronger and more secure when they act according to the rule of law. Um, By the way, in contrast, former President Donald Trump uh, gave an address this week in which he described Netanyahu as a person who had let him down. (laughs) So it was an interesting contrast. But in Biden's speech, he drew a distinction between terrorists who purposefully target civilians and democracies that uphold the laws of war, and that that distinction is really critical, and Rena, I know from the work you do that you think about this, and you think about how to think about uh, you know a, a democracy, and then uh, or an autocracy, and the people who inhabited right uh, the the um, on the spectrum of dissidents to fascists, uh, you know, uh, on the spectrum of of peaceful people to terrorists. Um, I, I it seems to me that Joe Biden was trying to begin to make some of those distinctions for for people, but also, as you say, Mike, um, resquare our our sense of what America's role in the world is, or set the stage for a new chapter. I am not an expert in this at all, Rena. You know a lot about this. I wonder if you think that this speech was effective. Um, I wonder how well you think. It addressed the concerns of the international community and, and Americans alike, um, but 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 generally, what your reaction um, was around it, and 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 whether or not there's there's something you know to discuss about the the alignment around supporters of a rules based order and those who are against it, for lack of a, a
2: better way of describing that. I think these are brilliant questions, Lucy, because. For folks like me, there's never been any question about what Joe Biden was going to say in response to the attacks. I mean, um, these were war crimes, fair and simple. I mean, we can't label them any other way, uh, what Hamas did. Um but if you watch joe biden in his entire career from the legislative branch to the executive branch you know that he was going to re- respond that way it was it was a moment in which he knew he needed to say certain things to assuage certain concerns but again those who know him know he was going to keep it square and right there um one thing i would i would I do to argue so much as just uh, perhaps push back on what Mike said for a moment about this situation being quite fluid. Actually, I, I don't see it that way. I think I've always expected the response um, and known that it's it's going to follow a certain pattern. Uh, because when we look at hegemonic stability theory, uh, it explains it quite clearly. We are still very much in that place where we are that single dominant state. and um, But when point that I I actually really quite agree with, Mike, and and think it is the most salient point here is that the digital era has changed so much. And perhaps that's what I find fluid, not our government's response. No, not so much as how Biden met the moment and where we go from here um, as the United States of America and having Israel's back, right? But the part that I'm most worried about is people across the globe um, no, no longer sort of willing to see this for what it is, which is the slaughter of innocent Jewish, Israeli, and Palestinians. So, um, very clearly, we have to be, um, you know, we have to be sincere in how we communicate all this. And to me, the starting point is saying that Hamas also does not represent all Palestinian people. Just like the state of Israel right now does not represent all Jewish people. There are videos coming out right this moment about, you know, fellow Israelis turning on elected members of their government who are right wingers. And I think this Netanyahu is going to pay. For this, I in fact, it's I'm hearing it already out of Israel that um, folks are angry at Netanyahu. They're saying this is on his hands. This was on his watch. This is because of that right wing government. So again, I, I realize I'm throwing a lot in here and making a salad of sorts with my words. But what I am, I want to draw a, a clear, quick line to is the fact that here in the United States, we've not cleared the bench for the next generation of leaders. So when you haven't got a younger bench of leaders who understand this conflict, right? That opens a door for yet another president to say, there's my Orthodox Jewish son-in-law. He's going to broker peace in the Middle East. Well, guess what that was? We know who I'm talking about here, right? Former President Trump uh, tapping Jared Kushner and and saying all is well. He's going to handle this. And then they left the White House what was Trump doing? He was just trying to enrich the family name. What's the whole point of going out to the Middle East and doing all that? It's all a show. It's a dog and pony show meant to enrich the family brand. And what it was, was authoritarianism with the veneer on it. And what I really want is younger Americans to wake up to that and say, all of this is wrong. What's our role in the world as Americans who have these values and hold them dear of freedom, equality, and great, I mean, truly unity. That's what I think is sort of missing in this moment. I I, I don't see enough of that um, making its way down to a younger generation of folks. Whether we want to say it's millennials or Gen Z, uh, we are we are missing the moment to cultivate these um, these thoughts in the next generation of leaders. So Mike is absolutely right, and when he says this is about the communications challenges that follow, not so much the policy making challenges. You mentioned bringing
1: more young voices in, so I'll mention the voice of a forty-something a who I'm personally not so hot on, and I don't think either of you are either. And that's uh, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, um, who unfortunately is is forty-three. Jared Kushner, whom you mentioned, forty-two. So not all the forty-somethings are what we'd hope for, but we'll get better forty-somethings. Uh, but on on Monday, Josh Hawley wrote on X, <laughs> Twitter. That any funding for Ukraine should be redirected to Israel immediately. And the U.S. envoy to NATO, Julianne Smith, said that aid to Israel won't come at Ukraine's expense. But the House didn't provide any new money for Ukraine in their continuing resolution that funds the government until mid November. And so we're starting to see, in addition to this fracturing that you've both highlighted that's happening on both sides of the aisle, we're starting to also see that the, the emerging conflict, the emerging war, um, in Israel, in that, in the, in that region is creating an opportunity for people like Josh Hawley, um, to pursue this tactic of, of trying to pit these two issues against each other. Um, there's also been, there's also been, um, some, some new developments where, uh, in response, uh, Folks who who want to make sure that Ukraine efforts continue to be funded are are taking advantage of of fervor around a, a different piece of the Israel, Israel Hamas um, landscape to do with uh, to do with how the 6 billion dollars um, that had been unfrozen as part of the deal with Iran how that does or does not get allocated um, they have now turned around and said you know we also froze some russian <laughs> assets maybe we just move those over to ukraine right like all of all of this can you say money's fungible great here's here's how we can uh, maneuver some of this but i i wonder mike and and then rena too what do you make of this tactic of of trying to pit these two issues against each other is that is that workable how are you thinking about that
0: well look i think it's inevitable and i actually think it's going to be a very good thing for for the you know those fighting for democracy and freedom and for for you know liberal construct of the world and and let me share why and this is this is what i was talking about when i was saying that it's a very fluid situation this is an extraordinarily fluid moment in a period that will likely define the next century, because these conflicts are not isolated. These conflicts are, are funded essentially by the same source. That's what we're going to you know, find out and will become clearer and clearer in time as part of this larger global effort. And that is the, the tactics that were used in, uh, in Russia's incursion into deeper into Ukraine, we have to remember I, I look. I was there when this happened. When 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 the Bucha and Erpin stories broke in Ukraine of the torture chambers of what Russian soldiers were doing to children and doing to to young women and doing to civilians and to the elderly, they, they were they were torture chambers. And and they it was a long sustained period where this was going on. Terror is an is a tool. Terror is a tool of these efforts of of these of these movements, and they are not isolated. We are going to find out that there is a Russian funding source at a minimum, probably training a lot of these soldiers in Hamas that were doing this. Whether Iran had its involvement, I certainly think that they did. They're obviously denying it. And there are conflicting reports coming out about it. But Russia and Iran are, are allies. And and, and the, this new global order that has been being pushed, not just by Putin, but by the mullahs in Iran and by Xi Jinping in China, this is all a global war that we've been talking about on the show for a number of years. World War III has started. We are, we are waist deep in it. It's not coming. It's here. It's just that the way the tactics that are going to be used in this digital age are going to look very, very different. It's not going to be black and white footage of you know, tanks rolling in 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 France, like World War II footage. This is a different type of war. And this is what I think is the biggest challenge for Americans, who I think still have this cold war mindset, this real, real candidly misunderstanding of of America's role in the world and the way to exert power. During a time of global hegemony, multipolarism, I would argue, is already here. It doesn't mean that it's going to be three or four or five different equal powers. India's rise is something that we're not paying enough attention to. China's instability and it is it, it is unstable is something that we're not focused on. Well, maybe we are, but probably not as much as we should be. I'm going to be bringing that up as as you know my the, the story that I'm watching because that's what's that's what's behind all of this. Iran's aggression is not new, but it's certainly got more power, clearly, when we watch what's happening on the terrorist front, and Russia's an overtly aggressor nation like this. The post-Cold War era is over. We have entered a new period in human history, and it's going to change geo- our geopolitical structure. So there's enormous openings to have these discussions where I think the most political uh, uh, danger is is for these forces on the right. You're already starting to see people consciously, some of these these big right-wing you know commentators saying, well, Ukraine's different. Ukraine's not like Israel, right? These are different stories. The truth of the matter is, they are exactly, it is the same conflict. It is the same war. And we are going to come to that conclusion that when America doesn't establish its place and its leadership, these vacuums get fueled by very bad, nefarious actors. That's the story of the Trump era. That's the story of isolationism. That's the story of trying to undermine NATO and our weaknesses with, with our allies when there is an aggressive posture by bad forces on this planet. And thank God Joe Biden's the president, but until we recognize that that we are we are no longer in this post-Cold War mindset, driven by cold war mind minds we're, we're going to have to reimagine what america is this is not there's there's no textbook written for this this is like reminds me when when kenan was writing his books you know on 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 the on the, on the on the world and and it's 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 um balance of power between two two nuclear powers right is is there needs to be very new thinking about our geopolitical structure because none of the textbooks work that's what's been clear to me uh, since 2014 like w- w- America's foreign policy lacks vision it lacks understanding it lacks richness and depth in where the world is heading and most importantly I think it, it's lacked the ability and the confidence to go out and positively drive something other than getting us bogged down in these you know w- unwinnable wars um, in our own response to to attacks uh, on our homeland like in, in the Afghan uh, a theater, uh, a post nine eleven. So sorry about the rant, but I, 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 mean, I think about this a lot because this is not these are not one offs. This is all tied together. The battlefield is is taking shape, and I think actually the American right is going to be dramatically uh, uh, divided on this. And I think the cleavages that you're seeing um, already between Scalise and Jordan, the establishment versus the Trump faction. Um, is, is is a sign of things to come in the base as the Israeli uh, war um, matures because it's going to become very clear who's on what side. Look at Zelensky who, who shows up in Israel, which I think he probably will in the next ten or fourteen days. That's going to be that's a sign. That is a sign to the world of what the hell is going on here. It's not just these random occurrences and random terrorist attacks. This is all coordinated. And it's 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 plain uh, as Dave for, for me to see, and I think for a lot of people who watch this, but that will become into really uh, stark reality uh when and if that moment hopefully comes. And I hope it comes soon.
1: Well, well put. There are so many ways that we could continue to take this this section that it has so many threads to pull on, but I hear you both saying and expressing this sense of something changing in in our world order and that, you know, there are, I've I've thought this week about uh, the assassination of, of Archduke Ferdinand, right? How these episodes beget more and more. And, and so certainly I'm sure we'll be talking about this a lot more and, and how it impacts not only our, our adversaries, but our allies and um, how it impacts things like our, our next election. So as this global crisis was unfolding over the weekend, the House of Representatives was without a permanent speaker after Kevin McCarthy had been ousted earlier this month. Patrick McHenry, whom a lot of people had never heard of before last week, became the speaker pro tem after McCarthy was voted out. But McHenry is effectively powerless in that role. Under House rules, he can only act on matters that relate to the election of a new speaker, like gaveling in and out and presiding over the vote. And boy, have we learned that Patrick McHenry loves a gavel. Guy loves a gavel. On Wednesday, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise won the Republican nomination for speaker. That's the closed-door vote of members of the Republican conference. He beat out House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan 113 to 99. But that doesn't mean that Scalise has enough votes when it goes to the floor. Later on Wednesday, the House convened for about three minutes before going back into recess since there was no way to move forward with a vote. So our, a lot of our listeners will have watched the performative politics that played out last week with Matt Gates pushing for McCarthy's ouster. Nancy Mace, who's one of the Republicans who voted to remove McCarthy, wore a T-shirt this week with a red letter A on it, and she told reporters that it was her scarlet letter. Not to be outdone, Wyoming Congresswoman Harriet Hageman arrived at the House Speakers Candidates Forum carrying a lasso so performative politics which these members certainly do love is suddenly coming up against a real world crisis right this is occurring in the backdrop of some issues domestic and abroad that need to be addressed urgently so i wonder mike how does the attack on israel change the urgency of a speaker vote and And what does the behavior of these members, of people like Nancy Mace or any of these Republicans or any of the members, what does it signal to the rest of the world about how we're orienting as a country on this?
0: There's no question that it's an embarrassing look for the United States. And again, it gets back to the capacity to lead. You don't just lead through military force. You lead through a lot of soft diplomacy and 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 you have you're not really the leader of the world if if other people in in the global community don't have confidence in your ability to deliver. And we've been hearing that from our allies. They, they are talking with each other about America's democracy, frankly, not functioning. Now, I want to be careful. What we're seeing in the House is not a, is not democracy coming apart. It's it's a dysfunction of a, of a political party that is really not a political party anymore. Because there's no there's no philosophy that that is organizing the Republican conference or the Republican Party, for that matter. And we are starting to see the first signs of the reckoning that a lot of us, I think all three of us have been talking about for many years. Like the reckoning is coming. It doesn't come in one moment. It comes in a series of of stages of collapse Kevin McCarthy's election as speaker was the first part of that that was I think, apparent and evident in the House, right? It wasn't just going fifteen rounds. It was the fact that he couldn't get there for personal reasons. It had nothing to do with with the caucus's philosophy or disagreement on on substantive policy. This was all really – what it all ultimately came down to was Matt Gates basically saying, fine, I'll go forward with it if you allow me at any moment to make a motion to vacate the chair that the, that the house has to take up. And they're like, okay, fine. Like that is that fact that we all know that when he signed that deal, his speakership was going to be short and we just didn't know how short it was going to be. Gates plays the card. And when he plays the card, it exposes a much bigger dysfunction underneath. Which is there is this Jim Jordan faction? By the way, Donald Trump endorsed Jim Jordan and wasn't able to get a majority, and that's something that we're probably not hasn't gotten enough attention. Right? Is 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 there, there is the, the the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Donald Trump wing of the party that is behind Jim Jordan? Uh, George Santos is with Jim Jordan very strongly. Uh, for other reasons, I would imagine. But then there is this there is this Scalise who who I've always said Kevin McCarthy was the last of the establishment Republicans. Scalise is kind of halfway there, right? He's like half establishment, half swamp, half not, half Trump, half whatever. He's just like hybrid. But there, it, it's looking, look, Scalise, by all estimations, should be the next speaker, right? He won a majority of the conference. The conference, under normal circumstances, would, would close ranks and support him. I don't think he gets there. And and the reason why is you look at who has publicly said they're against them. It's like 10, 11. And it's not that they're just like, no, they're like, absolutely, hell no, You know, light me on fire before I vote for Steve Scalise. This is going to become a, a protracted, long fight, which, by the way, the person who's actually playing it right, and I'm not suggesting this will happen, but it may happen, is Kevin McCarthy. Who's like, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna get involved in this. I'm gonna go out on Fox News and articulate what the Republican ideas and Republican plans. He's doing as many Fox appearances as he can to demonstrate his leadership while not getting involved with the messiness, because he he is is, I think, surmising accurately that the conflict in the House GOP is intractable. It can't be fixed by the Republicans, at least at this point in time. Long Mike Madrid wind up, up saying, does the Israeli situation change that? I don't think that it does. And the reason why is because and again this is going to this is this goes back to the Josh Holly comment. Th- there's going to be in the coming weeks a nexus and awareness that the Israeli conflict is the Ukrainian conflict and the Ukrainian conflict is the Israeli conflict. These are not separate. Like no one's put it together yet, but as the debate goes on and this starts to come together, it's going to really undermine the foundations of the of of the Republican conference and there are going to be two dramatically different sides between these establishment republicans who have enabled and capitulated and bent the knee to this trumpist you know swallowing of the party and this uh, uh you know ascendant animated performative trump wing of the party which you know, finally found its its place in the Trump era, and isn't going to go quietly into the good night. This is a train wreck. They are heading at, at at full speed at one another. So, no, I don't think that the Israeli situation alone is going to bring this together and get us a leader. I think that the Ukraine stuff actually helps force this discussion and probably brings it to a head. But the bigger consideration, as bigger those two things are, is. We're 37, 38 days away from the continuing resolution expiring. We're about to run out of cash. No one's even talking about how to rectify that situation because we don't have a speaker. And now we've got two hot wars on the, on the, on the planet that need our immediate attention and funding and resourcing. And so, yeah, this is having a real life impact. And, and I hate to bring it to domestic politics, but this is going to be extraordinarily damaging to the Republican Party domestically okay and and if there is a if the conflict that is arising in the house between the Scalise and Jordan factions does take root as it essentially looks like it already has this could actually really be that 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 Fever swamp of of the Trump lock on the party breaking, and not elegantly, not quietly, not atomizing like and in diffusing into the air like a vaporizer. It could just come like a sledgehammer cracking granite in just two massive splits. And I think that that's the likeliest scenario at this point in time. Um, I'm not we're, we're not predicting speakers here, but in a scenario like that, the most likely scenario is some backbencher that we've never heard of who doesn't want the job, is the only person safe enough to pick for it. That's how we got Dennis Haster.
2: Rena? There's so much I want to say. I mean, I- (laughs) Former Hill staffer yourself. Oh my gosh. I I have such a love for, for Congress as an institution, despite its terrible approval ratings in the modern era. I mean, it just- Every year, lower and lower, right? So people don't like Congress. That's almost like an American fact now. But when I look at that eight that went against their 202 other colleagues who voted not to oust McCarthy, I saw differing reasons. Uh, I saw Congressman Burchett from Tennessee say, This is about spending. Uh, this was about uh, an edict I have from my constituents to rein Washington in. And that's something we've heard over time, over and over, right? It's about how we are not being good stewards of taxpayer dollars. I mean, you hear Republican members of Congress beat that line uh, to death almost. But Burchett was serious about it. He's like, if we bring in $5 trillion, why are we spending $7 trillion? And we've heard the same argument on the GOP primary debate stage, is that we are, our, our children, we are doing wrong by them. And so- uh, when I see uh, Kevin now as just a regular old member of Congress, I know that this is not only going to be you know good cocktail party fodder for years to come because everyone's got something to say about it uh, about how it was just a very small number of members of Congress in the majority party that could f- voice their chamber and the country into a really big crisis uh, you know when when we talk about how the rules of the speaker are, uh, the rules that, that allow that speaker to stay in office. So look, if Republicans don't want to change the system, like let them knock themselves out with another 15 ballots, fine. But what I think is, is most important to look at all this uh, and, and see is the Democrats' role in it and how they almost stayed out of the internal fight within the Republican Party yet. They all voted to oust McCarthy, right? So I think this force reckoning could be the reset that could help. I had a little bit more optimism about it last week, actually, (laughs) before I saw the names that that were put forward and, and the fact that Trump endorsed Jim Jordan, who is such a joke from Ohio. I mean, he's... Talk about political theater. I mean, that's a guy who just should have, you know, become a thespian. He really should have gone into acting. He's so good at that. And and these these folks have such a lack of desire to to govern, to pull the levers of government and and do right by the people that put them there. And, and Jim Jordan knows better. He's been there for a long time. But these are rebels without a cause now. And um, I would just say this, you know, to anybody that's angry at those eight, don't be. Why? I mean, what's that going to get you? They they had Nancy Mace, for example, said it was about trust. It was about the fact that she had certain things she wanted to see this speaker help her do, and he didn't do them, and that she just didn't trust him anymore. But then, what I disagreed with is when she came out and endorsed Jordan. I'm like, go for the more safer and the smarter option, which to me has always been Scalise. And look, I, I've come up, I, I've watched the ascension of Kevin McCarthy from a really younger, a junior member of Congress to being, you know, somebody that. Always had his eyes on the speakership. But one thing that I think, um, you know, look, it, it is, is kind of being lost in this Glee scramble, right? Like he's still looking for those votes to make him the speaker. It's the fact that he also, just like Jim Jordan, um, voted to overturn the election results. It, that was after the January 6th riot, right? Like the, the insurrection. This guy, Scalise, who, again, knew better, got with guys like Jim Jordan and said, yep, let's overturn those election results. So the latest news now is that their colleague, Congressman Ken Buck, who's also, again, a Republican, he's saying that the next speaker must publicly support the 2020 election results. And I think that's a good thing. So I know we all three care about accountability, but- We can't let these things get lost. I yes, I am calling Scalise the smarter, safer choice for speaker, but we can't let these people forget what they did in the aftermath of Trump and his uh, doing what he did on January sixth, and and his entire effort to undermine the integrity of our elections. Like we just can't let these people go. I'm glad you mentioned Ken Buck because the contrast between
1: Ken Buck and say Nancy Mace has really stood out. For me, this week, Nancy Mace, who seems to have frittered away her credibility as a person who called out <laughs> January 6, who was was seen by a lot of Never Trumpers as as maybe a hope hope to um, get back to a, a, a kind of conservatism that would be more productive, really lean into that performative politics that that we talked about, and and I I I would just offer this as a sort of a, a question. Um, to both of you. But Mike, you know, that, that contrast between Ken Buck and Nancy Mace really strikes me as interesting because Ken Buck, who is a Republican congressman from Colorado, was a Republican Party official in Colorado. He did indeed Um, try to put that, that issue, that question of, do you believe that the 2020 election uh, was won by President Joe Biden or not front and center in the speakers debate, which a lot of folks in the conference do not like. Um, And, and Ken Buck is a person who is, who is out now, you know, denouncing some of the worst part of the brand of Republican politics, but he's, he's, also, a person who, as recently as last month, there were reports that Ken Buck is looking for his exit from Congress, and for example, that he's in conversation with cable networks to uh, to leave Congress and go become a commentator on CNN. And so, when you look at the parallel, Mike, between Nancy Mace and Ken Buck, I I, I wonder not to ask a leading question, but what do their two paths say? <laughs> about what it does or doesn't take to be successful institutionally as a Republican in Congress right now in in the backdrop of of a time where we're paying a lot more attention to them because of this fight over who will be the next speaker.
0: It's a great question. I was actually working with a Politico reporter on on who's uh, writing a, a great story on this. Um, it essentially uh, deals with the collapse of representative government. Right when we set up this idea of a House of Representatives, the idea was you would represent this geographic area, and then you would come by horseback or wherever you were coming from, and live in <clears throat> wherever the Congress was at that time. Um, that the, the problem that there is, we, the communities that our members represent are no longer geographically restricted. So that's why you have Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boebert's and Matt Gates and Nancy Maces and and you know woman bringing in a lasso you know into the conference is trying to make theater out of this is because they're the, who they represent is really the, who they're raising money from, which is a big part of what this is about. Who they're getting you know likes and clicks from. Aren't people necessarily in their in their their districts? I think I saw a, a note Patrick McHenry, uh, Patrick McHenry, the, the speaker-ish or speaker light or whatever he,
1: speaker for speaker Jim, of time, that we'd never, that heard, we'd of. never heard of <laughs> has
0: raised something like less than a thousand dollars from his district over the last you know few uh, few election cycles. Which it, there are 435 members of Congress. Yeah. Like there, it's when you. That's a
1: good thing for people to remember. Yeah. There are a lot of these. There are guys. a lot of these people, and they all want to be on cable. Yeah.
0: And, and the path to power <laughs> used to be what kind of Buck was doing, right? Or or the Boehner types would do is you would build relationships over years. You would cash in favors. You would do favors. You would, you know, all of this stuff, and you would kind of work your way up through the powers of Congress, and maybe someday, if you were fortunate enough, you could become Speaker of the House. That has changed dramatically. The, the the whole the idea that a Lauren Boebert doesn't have sway over what's happening in the speakership fight or Marjorie Taylor Greene is absurd. Of course, they do. They've got these massive followings that are very rabid and kind of move in whichever direction they're told to move in. And these members have not been there very long at all. Um, and, and so the the whole, the whole, the whole path to power, right. To put it in LBJ terms has changed. It's forever changed in this institution. And what it really means is it's not just frustrating for this moment in time. It really, I would argue, it really means that representative government, the way that it was envisioned and has worked for 250 years, simply doesn't work anymore. And that that's not serving as a good check against this mob rule, right? You know, I have this affinity for the Federalist Papers and talk about it probably far too much on this show, but but that's what that's what the framers were worried about. That's what they were concerned about: is how do you how do you contain the mob? Right? They envisioned a world of of Matt Gates's. They envisioned a world of the Madison Cawthorns. They envisioned a world of just purely performance, uh, of just self, raw, naked self interest, and not acting in the best interest for neither the representatives or the country. And that that is um, on, on on pure display now. So it's falling apart, and 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 again, we're we're seeing not just a not just a, a, a and it's not an ideological difference, but a difference between, um, the the Jordan Trump faction and the Scalise establishment McCarthy faction. Like it's not just that that is happening. There's just a generational attitude about the institutions that is dramatically changing. There's no regard for democratic with a small D democratic institutions for this generation of Republicans. And I think that's something that we need to be very mindful of because it's dangerous. Um, it's dangerous as we transition again into a, a digital age. Keep talking about that. You know, um, we are we are we are fully ensconced in it, but our institutions and our perspectives are still very much in the last century because they they were products of those institutions, and these institutions they're not they're not working, um, and the, the filters that that the founders set up do not work in a digital age demonstrably like we're watching it every day happen up uh, you know play out this does not work and so there's going to have to be a rethinking of democracy because look no matter what happens i think one of the lessons the one of the big takeaways is over the course of the past few years what we've realized is democracy is going to look very 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 different in the next 10 15 years if not sooner than it does now like dramatically different and some of these changes some of these reforms are going to have to be instituted, because if they're not, the institutions themselves are just going to grind to a halt. And we may start to see that in, in, in real time if, if we run out of cash in the next 35 days, and we can't keep the government open and running while we've got an aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean and $600 million worth of HIMARS sitting in the Donbass region pointed at the Russian border. like That's not a good place to be. That's not global Leadership—that's not the way a hegemon acts. Like that is not an ascendant power, and that's that's uh, just the frank reality we have to understand: is our institutions are no longer capable of 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 moving and working when our culture has become so intransigent, so hyperpolarized, and so stuck in the mud.
1: What is going to happen in in the speaker's race? Is I I will leave you with a couple of, of pieces of current information, right? We know that Scalise needs 107 votes in his favor. He's facing a challenge that is pretty similar to what McCarthy faced nine months ago, but the time is different, right? The stakes are high. The time frame is shorter. The opposition is larger. The conference is angrier. Scalise won 113 votes in the conference. Before his 15 round marathon floor vote in January, McCarthy won 188 against Republican congressman from Arizona, Andy Biggs. Scalise has been able to flip folks. He flipped Anna Paulina Luna, a former Jordan backer whose get excited priorities include impeaching Biden, subpoenaing Hunter Biden, and defunding special counsel Jack Smith, who's overseeing the federal criminal case against Donald Trump. Luna wouldn't tell reporters if she was promised to vote on any of these priorities in exchange for her vote. But she did say that Scalise, quote, is definitely someone the Biden administration should not be playing games with. And so one of the defining issues of the McCarthy speakership was conceding a lot of power to the far-right anti-Biden wing of the conference. This is a different time. We have two international crises in Israel and Ukraine, both of which will require financial support from the U.S. and the House is currently paralyzed. We need another, another bill to address government funding, which is going to run out in just over a month. We know, as you've both alluded to tensions within the Republican conference are high. So I guess what I'm looking for here, just very quickly from each of you is, is a, is a prediction is Scalise going down the same road as Kevin McCarthy. Is he going to become speaker? (laughs) What do you think each of you?
0: Mike, <laughs> I, I think it's pretty clear Scalise can't put it together. Not just because he can't cobble the votes, which you know, every, uh, people really need to understand in a, in a leadership fight in a speakership fight. Every round of voting has its own its own um, characteristics. They're all every single one of them is different. All the dynamics of each one of the fifteen different votes that Kevin McCarthy went up had its own different dynamic. Scalise's problem is he's got people who are publicly Saying I at a very personal level, Jake Tapper put something out this morning showing the opposition to him. It's personal, it's deep, it's angry. It's like Matt Gates versus Kevin McCarthy. Like it was, no, it's not going to happen. And I think for so so unless something extraordinary changes, and maybe that's what it's going to take to get to a speakership anyway. I think we're probably more likely in for a longer protracted fight. I was predicting Scalise uh 72 hours uh, ago i was saying he he was going to get more votes out of the conference in jordan he did i thought that there would be more support in co- coalescing that afterwards and republicans would have the temerity to figure it out that okay let's get this show on the road that's not happening it's getting worse uh it's not getting better and so again i think at least at this point in time today the the most likely scenario is scalise fa- fails to get it they don't go to the house before they you know fight of this out a few more times in private and then we'll probably see uh, the emergence of a speaker that no one's ever heard of
1: Rena is he going to be speaker Steve Scalise
2: I tend to think he will. Um, so he secured you know, the party's nomination for speaker. And, and he, to do that, he had to beat Jim Jordan. But like you said earlier, it was 113 votes in his favor. Jordan had 99 in his. So what he's really scrapping for right now um, is to lock down the 217 votes he needs on the House floor. And I think he can do that. I just do. I I think it's possible. Um, There have been a lot of parallels drawn between him and Kevin McCarthy. Look, they were all kind of part of the same gaggle that came up. They are categorized the same. But um, one thing that is very different for Steve Scalise, who has literally taken a bullet for being a member of Congress, as we all know, um, is that he has a very loyal operation around him. If you've been on Team Scalise, like this is this is a staff that gets together for people's weddings years later, even if you all weren't in, in his offices at the same time, um, they are very, very loyal to one another. They're very loyal to him as a person, as the leader of that pack. Um, if you were on Steve Scalise's team, you're thought to be on that team for life. McCarthy just didn't have that loyalty around him. And I think... When you have that loyalty built in with staffers, it augments a whipping operation, which everybody knows uh, any speaker needs a solid whip. Um, But when you have a built-in whipping operation that is as loyal as his is, um, it makes your job much easier as speaker.
1: Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories of this week, let's just touch briefly on what we're watching. Mike, what's
0: grabbed your attention this week? I'm watching... Uh, With all of the crazed news out there and all these huge news stories breaking, I'm still watching China, who, again, their second largest real estate investment trust has basically said that they are going to stop making bond payments, which means the two largest real estate investment trusts globally are about to go bankrupt. And that that is an extraordinarily destabilizing place for China to be. Um, my sense is that if they were not, uh, if they're, if they've told wall street that they're not going to make bond payments, it means that the government has probably said, we're not going to, you're not too big to fail. You're, you're going to fail. We're, we're done propping you up. And that could have extraordinary consequences, not just for the global economy, but for what's happening, um, with these two conflicts, uh, both in, in Ukraine and Israel. So my eyes are on China. I don't think that the, the last shoe has dropped in this, what I continue to, uh, um, say call a, a a coordinated war, this you know, th- this global war that is in Ukraine, that is now in the Middle East, and I think is probably uh, looking closer towards Taiwan than than we'd like and imagine it to be
2: mm, that's a good one. Rina? Darn it Mike, I was gonna say the same. I am always a China watcher. I'm always watching China, but uh, what I'm watching is actually stateside right now. So I'm talking about Bob Menendez, um, who with his wife has been accused um, of accepting gold bars from a corrupt bank executive. Okay. So yeah, gold bars right there. That on its face made me laugh already. Uh, He's been married to this woman three years, but now there's a developing story that I, I am especially interested in. Because um, there's a superseding indictment now that is giving him an additional charge of acting as a foreign agent. Mm. A big, big no-no. I mean, this is a sitting U.S. senator. And the junior senator, Cory Booker, has already asked him to resign. He refuses. Um, so let's just remind folks what Menendez is accused of. And he's accused of conspiring with that wife, again, of three years. Uh, and a New Jersey businessman, YL, Will Hanna. A name I'd actually known for a long time because the first member of Congress I worked for uh, was from New Jersey's fifth congressional district. He was uh, Congressman Josh Gottheimer's predecessor, so I knew Jersey. I know New Jersey politics quite well. So uh, Will Hanna is a name I had heard in the past, but. Again, um, this is this is about Menendez, his wife, Wilhana, um, all acting uh, with the Egyptian government between 2018 2022. They've been charged with conspiracy and uh, for a public official to act as a foreign agent, right? But it's it's all really, really bad. This is, this is about accepting luxurious bribes and all with the intent of helping enrich uh, Wilhana. And benefiting Egypt's government, and that's the part that I'm just like, oh, that's so messy and nasty. You're a sitting U.S. senator, and you've been, you've done this song and dance before. You've been accused of corruption. You've said I've overcome, and now again, and so it's just, it's all gross. It's all terrible. We all, you know, I always hear from my relatives in India, uh, in the UK, and other parts of the world in Africa um, that, oh, in the United States, your, your corruption really isn't out in the open as it is in some countries. It's like, you know, beneath the surface, it can't be seen. And I'm just like, this is one of the few stories in a modern American politics where this corruption seems pretty darn overt. And I just feel that Menendez should have moved on by now, but he, he refuses. And they pleaded not guilty, he and his wife. I think he soon will no longer be the senator at, at a very least. So I'm watching Lectern
1: Gate, which for those who haven't been following along at home, is this really bizarre tale of uh, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders um, and a, a weird transaction of, of nearly $20,000 that appears to have been for a podium. Um, it, it began when someone was looking into... Uh, looking into her travel expenses, and in the course of, of a FOIA request by uh, by a, a an attorney and journalist, public interest journalist, it came out that, in fact, you know, she, they refused to turn over those travel expenses. And so then she brought the Arkansas legislature into special session, uh, ostensibly to do an income tax cut. But then also, she's like, can you also change our public records laws so that I don't have to turn over this stuff? All, all of this has begun to uncover more and more and more um, around Sarah Huckabee Sanders ostensibly um, getting, uh, trying to cover payment for a luxury vacation, maybe to France. It's, it's all very unclear, but it's very, it's very corrupt and sort of casually corrupt. But I, I was interested in this because I um, am interested in a slightly different element of this story, which is a thing that I don't think that we talk about enough when we're talking about corruption of these elected officials, which is who are their staff who are facilitating this? And uh, I remembered that Sarah Huckabee Sanders chief of staff, who was also her campaign manager, um, is a woman named Gretchen Conger, who used to be deputy chief of staff to former Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. And part of how Gretchen Conger came to be chief of staff to Sarah Huckabee Sanders by way of being her campaign manager when Sarah Huckabee Sanders was elected is that Gretchen Conger actually ostensibly had to leave Arizona after she was implicated in a scandal around um, around lobbying by Ducey donors and and Ducey deputies more specifically to issue tax refunds for mining companies that would be worth, you know, up to a hundred million dollars. And Gretchen Conger, who at that point um, was deputy chief of staff, did not disclose some of her personal conflicts of interest here, including that her own father um, was the president and chief operating officer at the time of Freeport-McMoran, which is a giant lobbying uh, company in Arizona. And and this tax break that Gretchen and others were lobbying for was going to result in a $10 million refund for Freeport-McMoran. I mentioned this. I have no idea what Gretchen Conger's role has been in lectern Gate, but I do know that, that probably as chief of staff, she had some, some knowledge of this. And it just reminded me that it's really interesting because these kinds of scandals make or break politicians, but there's this whole layer of people right underneath who somehow managed to, um, to sort of rise again and continue to be in power even though they may have a wake of scandals in their past themselves, that they are just operating slightly below. So it's a reminder of how much power not only operatives have, but but high level staff have. And I just thought, who knows if that will become a bigger part of the story? Do follow Electric Gate. It's pretty funny and troubling, but it just it remind at that angle um, interests me. Before we hop over to Politicology Plus where can folks find you both on the internet mike
0: find me at threads i'm trying to move aggressively off of yeah so i'm at m y k e madrid at mike madrid with a y why because we love you right let's put it that way and then i'm not going to mention mastodon or anywhere else i'm at but find me find me on threads (laughs) let's let's work on threads cool
2: rena where can people find you yeah i'm trying to also spend a little bit more time on threads i've given up on x i get a lot of weird solicitations primarily from different parts of the world but i'm rena in dc everywhere uh r-i-n-a i-n-d-c and i'm on twitter (laughs) at
1: lucy m caldwell thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach Ron and the team, as always, at podcast at com. I'm Lucy Caldwell. I'll see you soon.